The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. At the very dawn of cinema, women were pioneers. They invented technology and shaped the way that film was made. But as money began to be pumped into the industry and Hollywood as we know it was forged women were pushed out. And it's been a battle ever since. This is a story that Helen O'Hara charts in her new book, Women vs. Hollywood. And I spoke to her to find out more. What are some of the biggest issues that women in the film industry, both on camera and behind the camera, have faced over the last hundred years or so? Well, that's a whole book. <laughs> no, it's, it's basically... Um, it's been a struggle because I think in the early days in the silent, in the silent era, there were women who were able to be studio heads, directors, producers, writers, you name it. And they were able to succeed. But as studio became more of an industry and as the big money men came in from New York, suddenly it was seen as slightly dodgy to have women in senior roles and it was slightly suspect. And really, you know, if we're going to have tens of thousands of dollars riding on each one of these films, then we need a man in charge. So women were gradually... And then all at once, essentially forced out of the business by the by the dawn of roughly the start of the 1920s. A few held on through the 20s, but really after that point, there'd be maximum sort of one or two women working at a time in Hollywood up until sort of the 1970s when women gradually began to kind of force their way back into to the studio film side of things, at least as as you know as as directors and and writers in any great number. So that was basically the problem. There's, we have this idea that men are the ones who make films, that men are the ones who kind of can be trusted with, in nowadays, hundreds of millions of dollars to make a movie. And women are fighting against this image that they are best seen on screen and not really you know, in key roles, at least behind the camera. So they can do things like editing. They can do things maybe like script writing, certainly things like script supervision or costumes, but not things really like cinematography or directing, because that's more of a man's role. <laughs> yeah, that was something that I was really surprised to learn in the book, mm -hmm. because I assumed that in the early age of film that there'd basically be no women at all. But as you highlight, it was actually quite a lot of opportunities for women yeah. in film in the very early years. Could you highlight a couple of the early pioneers of film that were women? Yeah, so you've got people like Alice Guy, who was a secretary to Léon Gaumont, who was the great French sort of cinema uh, guru. And she was one of the first people to sort of see the Lumiere's demonstration of, of film projected on screen. And literally a few months after that, asked to borrow one of Gaumont's cameras and made one of the very first narrative films, because at that point, pretty much everybody was making kind of documentaries. And she was one of the very first to make a kind of a feature film, if you like. It was only 30 seconds long. It was not a big deal, but it was still a groundbreaking thing. 
And for 10 years afterwards, she worked for Gaumont and she she kind of showcased all of the incredible things his equipment could do. You know, she made sound films, she made colour films. And this is in literally the 1890s and 1900s. And then she went off and set up her own studio when she got married and moved to America. So women were able to literally set up a studio and nobody could kind of stop them at that point. And it was only later that that became a bit weird, you know. She was one of the first. Uh, you've got people then like Lois Weber, who at one point was the second highest paid director, I think, in all of Hollywood in the 1910s and was entrusted with huge projects. You know, she would be, uh, in, in modern terms, she'd be sort of, you know, a Steven Spielberg or something. She was g- getting given these immense productions and trusted with hundreds of extras because she got results at the box office and she got kind of good reviews at the same time. So why do you think it was that women like this found themselves pushed out? It was really the money. It was really the the, the changing face of the industry. So when Alice Guy started, or even when she went solo, you know, 10 or 15 years after that, she was still someone who was able to open her own studio and she was able to buy a building or rent a building and, and turn it into what she needed and do everything there. But what began to change in the sort of 1910s and 1920s is that Hollywood, as we now understand it, began to form. And you got these big studios that would make films that cost tens of thousands and then hundreds of thousands of dollars. And that was something that women really couldn't compete with. And the studios, with all that money, would not generally, at least, invest it in films made by women. Um, You also write about the studio system of the early 20th century in terms of how it controlled and influenced the lives of its female stars. Can you tell us a bit about the ways in which they exerted control over some of the big figures of film? Yeah, so the studios basically signed everybody to a contract. When we talk about, you know, studio contracts and the studio system, that's a key part of it. So you would sign up for, let's say, four years, uh, 40 weeks a year, and uh, you'd be paid, let's say, I don't know, $500 a week if you were quite a a young up-and-coming star. And for that, they would be able to put you in whatever films they wanted. You didn't have to choose a role. You didn't get to choose a role. That was your job to say yes and go and make that film. Now, the problem with that is that they want to therefore keep you working as hard and as long as possible. So there were studio doctors who handed out uppers and downers uh, to kind of keep people able to work all day and then able to sleep at night. Most famously, of course, to Judy Garland, I think with the connivance of her mother, who was one of the most horrific stage mothers ever to live. Um, so she was literally dosed up. She was drugged up so she could kind of keep going all day and then and then put on diners so she could sleep at night, which, of course, had a hugely detrimental impact on her mental and physical health. And then you also had women who were put in a difficult position whenever they got pregnant. So first of all, many of these studio contracts had morality clauses, which banned sex outside marriage. Now, that's fine for the male stars because nobody can tell. But in those days, with birth control in its infancy, if a woman got pregnant, she was put under pressure to have an abortion. And by the way, those were illegal at the time in the US, but that didn't really matter to the studios, which had the money to pay for somebody to come in anyway. Um, And this was true even if women were married. So Ava Gardner got, got pregnant when she was married to Frank Sinatra. He had no income at the time. She only had her studio contract. And so she chose to have an abortion rather than be dropped from the contract, you know. And then there were the women who got pregnant outside marriage and it was a straight choice. You would lose everything or you would have the studio mandated abortion. So it was really very tough on a lot of women. So women were much more affected by these morality clauses than their male co-stars. 
Yeah, exactly. The men could essentially get away with it. You know, how can you tell? In fact, we know in a couple of cases who the fathers of these babies were, you know, and, and there was no kind of fallout for them. You did have some women who got around it. You had some women who managed to have marriages with, I think there were seven seven children in one case I, I came across who, you know, still maintained a, a Hollywood con, uh, contract somehow. I don't know why. <laughs> um, but you also had people who got around it. So Loretta Young famously um, got pregnant after what she came in later life to know was a date rape by Clark Gable. She had not really understood that it was rape at the time because women, again, didn't have a word for that uh, at that time in, in history. But anyway, she got pregnant and as a devout Catholic, didn't want to have an abortion, uh, didn't agree with it. And so gave birth to the baby in secret. And about a year later, adopted a little girl. And what do you know? She looked a lot like Loretta. What what are the chances? Very canny. Very (laughs) canny indeed. Um, So as well as the treatment of women in the film industry, you also Mm. look at depictions of women on screen um, and the kinds of roles that they were offered. Yeah. When do you think perhaps was the nadir of the rep- of representations of women on film and also were there any bright spots that we might have forgotten about? Weirdly, I think one of the bright spots was quite early. I think one of the bright spots was in the sort of ni- late 1930s, early 1940s because at that point, the production code, which was the kind of censorship rules on Hollywood, had come in. And one of the things it uh, it didn't allow was, for example, women to be loose and flirtatious with too many men. And certainly it didn't allow them to play prostitutes and still emerge as the heroine of the film. If they were a prostitute, you know, things had to go badly for them. There had to be some kind of payoff at the end. So as a result of that, the kind of roles that women played actually had to change. And so you you had had quite a lot of, you know, fast-talking working girls in the early years. And suddenly you had a lot of fast-talking professional girls in the late 30s and 40s. And so people like Barbara Stanwyck and Rosalind Russell and, you know, Joan Crawford and Betty Davis got these incredible roles of these incredibly powerful, uh, feisty, strong women. And really... We're just getting back to that point, I feel like, sometimes. You know, they they were astonishing. And there were still, you know, obnoxious things in lots of those films. And this is, I should make clear, only white women were talking about at that point who were getting these opportunities. So th- there was a brief moment of, of kind of hope there. But then as the code receded and you got these more daring filmmakers, you know, showing sex, showing violence, showing crime without having to have everybody die at the end because they were criminals. You actually went a little bit the other way with women's roles. So in an era like the 70s, which is one filled with incredible films, they're very macho films. And there are really very few great roles for women that whole decade. I mean, if we're talking great leading roles, you know, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore has got to do a heck of a lot of heavy lifting to make up for all these films with just men in the lead and women in tiny supporting roles. Um, You spoke there a bit about the role of censorship in Mm. um, offering women more opportunities in the 40s. But you also speak about the flip side of that, that censorship could often work against female perspectives and and, um, female agendas. Yeah. So, the big thing with censorship was, uh, first of all, that it it policed female sexuality a lot more, you know, stridently than it did male. So women's costumes would have to be, you know, cover them up, and there was there were limits on how much leg they could show and things like that. Things that were never really policed with men. So you had Tarzan running around quite happily, you know, in his loincloth. 
so that's that's one side of it. Women tended to have to behave better to kind of get past the censors. So someone like Mae West, whose entire shtick was challenging authority and, and being sexual and being daring, was a, a huge thorn in their side and was a huge uh, problem for them, really. And then even in more recent times into the 70s, 80s, 90s, noughties, you will see female sexuality treated differently by censors than male sexuality. So any hint of a female orgasm on film will probably get you an NC-17 rating or certainly an R, whereas male sexuality is like, it's no big deal. It might be in a PG-13. So you get this weird double standard of what's okay and what's not and what we're supposed to be ashamed of and what's what's fine and normal and natural. Yeah, how have... Um the subjects that have been deemed worthy for coverage in cinema Mm. um, changed over time and how has that reflected women's interests or probably more accurately not reflected them? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the the kind of films that get made, I think, is is a really interesting point because it's almost background noise and we don't really register that as a question. We just accept that as, well, that's what film is. But if you think about the kind of films that are rewarded with, with, you know, awards and accolades... They tend to be male focused. You know, you get a lot of like war movies are considered important and weighty in a way that uh, quote unquote domestic dramas are not. And we have, we've kind of absorbed this idea that serious cinema tends to be kind of male driven cinema. It tends to be biopics of great men. It tends to be these very thinky adaptations of male dominated literature or, you know, war movies, spy movies, political thrillers, all of which are male dominated. And women do get left out of the picture of what counts as major cinema. And and that goes obviously into the popular sphere as well. You know, the money gets lavished on the male Avengers and maybe not Wonder Woman. You know, Wonder Woman was actually, by the standards of superhero movies, quite a low budget movie. So you get these kind of weird imbalances. And then if a female-led superhero movie, which was made at a lower budget with less care and attention, underperforms a male one, well, that just reinforces this narrative that people don't care about female-led super mo- superhero movies instead of maybe making somebody think, hey, maybe we should have put more money into that one, you know? So you get these weird imbalances. That's beginning to change. I think that's... Hollywood has begun to realise that there is an audience for female-led films and for films not led by white people and for films not led by straight people. And I think that's beginning to change. But we've got a really long way to go. And what do you think that the impact of female critics has been on the way that we see... um the subjects that are presented to us on film. So I'm thinking of of two examples that most mm. people might be most aware of here. Um, so the Bechdel test being one, and also the work of Laura Mulvey on the the idea of the male gaze. I am a female critic, and the good thing about that is there have always been some. There's always been somebody to look to for you know as a role model in a way that you know female directors have not always known about some of these early female directors, for example. That's a good thing. Uh, but but yeah, what we are seeing in this era is that some ideas are popularised by female film critics and female academics, and in the case of Alison Bechdel, female cartoonist, um, have kind of come into the public sphere and become part of the film conversation. And I think that's really important because it's given us a language to express what we instinctively feel is missing or what we instinctively feel is wrong with films. So the Bechdel test is very simple. It's like, are there two women in the movie do they talk to each other? And is it about something other than a man? Now, that is not a high bar. And yet most films fail it, which is crazy. It's absolutely crazy. 
But it goes to show how much women are there in films to kind of support men and be, you know, there to to provide a, a counsel or an ear or a love interest, but not to have any of the kind of authentic connections that we have with other women in the world. Similarly, the, the male gaze is, and I'm going to boil it down to a horrifically simple level, so I apologise to Professor Mulvey, but it is about who the film is assumed to be made for and who the filmmakers think is the viewer. And they have for decades assumed that the viewer is essentially a man, that the base viewer of films is a man. And therefore the hero or anti-hero of the film is likely to be a guy who does things. And he may be better looking and, you know, far taller and handsomer and, you know, whatever else, cooler for sure than an average man, but he is a, he is their avatar on screen. And women are there as kind of objects to be won or admired or feared, but they're not there to have agency and action in their own right. And I think that's, again, it's given women a language to speak about something that you instinctively feel sometimes when you watch, watch movies, but you don't really you can't necessarily explain why you feel left out of the party sometimes. And I think that's the male gaze at work. Um, I'm sure that this would take far too much time, but it'd be very interesting to see if somebody did the Bechdel test plotted through history of each year. Yeah. No, has anybody ever done that? Not to the best of my knowledge, but I, I, I haven't come across it, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. If you I fancy mean, sitting down and watching every <laughs> film ever made yeah. and the, charting I mean, the, it. The problem is, and, and I, I, you know, as you know, I went through a bunch of different tests in the book because there are some films that are sort of feminist and fail Bechdel. So something like Gravity, where there's only one woman in it, but then there's only two people in it. So, you know, maybe that's okay. So th th there are kind of limitations to it, but of course there are limitations because it's meant to be a joke. It was literally a joke in a comic uh, that it was developed by. But, but if you think about how few films would fail a reverse Bechdel, I think that's the key. If you think about how many films you've ever seen where there are not two men and they don't talk to each other about something other than a woman, I mean, there's almost none. And I think that's the big, big difference between, you know, Bechdel films and, and the other kind. We are so used to seeing men talk to each other on screen. We are so used to them having concerns beyond women. And we need to see the reverse of that as well. Yeah, that really throws it into stark contrast, mm. doesn't it? Um, you mentioned briefly earlier about female directors. Yeah. And the one statistic in your book that really stood out to me um, and I had to reread it because I thought I'd read it so wrong. So did I, yeah. <laughs> Was that between 1949 and July 1979, there were 7,332 films released by major distribution companies, but only 14 of those films had female directors. Yeah. What are some of the reasons that people have given for women not being directors or reasons they've presented to oppose women becoming directors. Yeah, so they, they try not to talk about it because they, I think they realise that their answers either sound ridiculous or offensive, you know, so they try to avoid giving them. But basically you'll hear sometimes that women don't want it enough, um, that women maybe don't do the right things, they don't do the things that men do in order to get uh, successful directing careers. Uh, and then kind of whispered underneath, maybe they're just not good enough. But the thing is, the more you take this apart, the the less any of it holds together. There's certainly probably been a, a moment, certainly during that 30-year period in particular, 
where women did not realize that directing was a job that was open to them. And I think there probably were women during that time in particular who just thought it's just not possible and gave up. But for well over 20 years now, if not 30 or 40, women have been entering film schools in the same numbers as men. So that's not the issue. It's not that they don't want it. It's that they're getting siphoned off at various parts in the process and that the doors aren't open to them in the same way that they are to men. The idea that they're not going about it in the wrong way, you know, you, you, you see people suggesting that, well, maybe they're all off having babies when they should be making films. But the fact is, first of all, not all of them are. And second of all, even the ones who do, that takes maybe a year out and not 10 years out between films, which is what a lot of them face between, say, their first and second film, if they manage to make two films, if those films are successful and everything else. What we're actually seeing, I think, is that women are doing the right things. They just don't pay off for women in the way that they do for men. So they can win the awards at Sundance or South by Southwest or can even, and that doesn't necessarily translate into big offers from big studios to do their next film. So it's not that they're not good enough. It's that they're they're not being given the opportunities that men are getting. And that's really what needs to change. And I think part of the the issue that you address in terms of um, female directors is, is that women just actually don't fit into the caricature which history has established yeah. of directors, this idea of the great genius, the auteur. I wonder if you could talk about how that idea of the auteur director has worked against women perhaps through history. Yeah, I think I think it has actually. And, you know, look, nothing against some auteurs. I love many, many of their films. But what you got was through certain self-publicizing directors, you know, the sort of Hitchcocks and the Orson Welles and so on. And then through a bunch of French theorists, this auteur theory came into popular usage and popular coinage. And again, it, like the male gaze, it's often used wrongly. But it is this idea that the, the director is the key figure in making a film and that it all comes down to his, let's be honest, not his or her, his genius. And when you kind of elevate the director to that level, it becomes even harder to for people to ascribe those qualities to women because they don't tend to credit women for those things. So a director has to spend all day, every day, having opinions about things, making definitive decisions about things. And people, not all people, but many people hate it when women do that. They hate women to be that opinionated and that certain of themselves. And... And equally, if women aren't that certain of themselves and want to listen to lots of different voices and want to consult with everybody, then they think they're wishy-washy and can't make up their minds. So female directors are in a real bind either way. They're either going to be viewed as being bitchy or they're going to be viewed as being wishy-washy. And, you know, it takes an extraordinary woman to get around that and to be able to be effective despite that, which is what a lot of the female directors we have now, but certainly in history, have really struggled to do. So it adds just this extra level of difficulty, as well as, incidentally, taking credit away from all the other people who work on a film. You know, Thelma Schoonmaker is Martin Scorsese's editor. She's made edited virtually all of his films since the 1970s. So, you know, is she the real genius there? I mean, she isn't. He's great as well. But she is a genius, and we should be talking about her nearly as much as we should be talking about him. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. But it really does depend on everybody realising and forcing studios and, and production companies and so on to realise that there is a real reputational risk if they don't 
take this seriously. So if you have a Harvey Weinstein, God forbid, in your midst, in your midst and you cover up for him, your entire company could suffer. Now, that's never really been the case before. And as long as that's the case, then there's hope of real change. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. As you point out, this veneration of directors has allowed for them to behave very badly in the past. It's allowed for exploitation and abuse, Mm. much of which has been directed at women. Um, You share some shocking stories of this in the book, and I wonder if you could tell us about some of them now. Yeah, so this this idea that filmmakers are auteurs and artists means that it's not just your kind of uh, economic life that depends on doing well in their films, but also your kind of artistic sense of self. So if you are a serious actress, you will want to be their tool and help them achieve this great work. And it, it further exacerbates this imbalance of power between actor and director. And in particular, you find these male directors kind of goading female actors into a performance instead of just trusting them to act. So you would get people, you know, um, Otto Preminger was was notorious for it, I think Fritz Lang at one point, kind of almost abusing their female stars to get particular moments and particular notes that they wanted. Hitchcock definitely was authoritarian with his actresses from day one, and but he gave them great roles so they would put up with it. And you would get these people saying, yeah, you know, you have to give him exactly what he wants and do exactly what he tells you, but that's just Hitch, you know, and they kind of didn't make a big deal of it. But later in his career, there's some... There's some evidence that he became a little bit obsessed with, say, Tippi Hedren, who starred for him in The in the Birds and Marnie, and that he made a pass at her. And she certainly says he did and that he she turned him down. And she therefore saw it as a straight up revenge when he put her at risk on The Birds and had basically birds being tied to her limbs and thrown at her for some of those kind of horrific scenes in the film. And she was quite badly injured at times. And one bird apparently pecked near her eye and nearly had her eye out. Um, and then again, he was he was kind of cold and authoritarian to her on Marnie. He didn't tell her about aspects of the script, and um, and she was very traumatized by that as well. So you get these directors who don't trust their actresses to act and and try to abuse them as a means of getting them into the state they want them in the character. And you know you ha- you have stories as well with um, Last Tango in Paris and Bernardo Bertolucci, um, Kim Bassinger in Nine and a Half Weeks was really put through the ringer as well. You have all of these horrific instances of directors who don't trust actresses to just do their jobs and don't ever seem to act the same way towards men, however inexperienced. So how have women fought back against some of this discrimination over time? Well, I mean, first of all, you have just the the really fantastically ballsy actresses, quite frankly. So the, the sort of Betty Davises and Joan Crawfords didn't put up with any nonsense and, and and really did talk back to a lot of their directors a lot of the time. 
Um, then you had people who fought the entire system. So Olivia de Havilland, for example, was one of the stars under contract to Warner Brothers. And she had never had much luck getting good roles there. So even something like Gone with the Wind, she was loaned to a different studio by Warner Brothers and couldn't get any decent roles at home. And when she turned down a role, she'd be put on suspension. So that meant that for you know one month, two months, however long it was, after she turned on something they asked her to do, she would sit there unpaid and until they could come up with something else that she would say yes to, or she'd be basically forced back into work because she was running out of cash. So this had happened several times during her career. And when she got to the end of her seven-year contract at Warner Brothers, they said, we're adding six months because you've spent so much time on suspension. And she took them to court under a previously obscure California labor law, which said that no contract of work could last longer than seven years. And she won. And that changed everything because it meant that from that point on, stars could sit out their contract on suspension and time couldn't be added on to the end. And it, it kind of took away one of the studio's kind of principal aims of uh, principal means of enforcement. So it was kind of important in bringing down the Hollywood system. You also had people like Marilyn Monroe, who had never had her due, frankly, at Fox. And by this point, she was a huge star in sort of 1954 and 1955. Huge, huge star. Had major hits for the studio. And they were still sort of paying her something like $500 a week, you know. So she basically declared them in breach of contract when a, a promised bonus didn't come through and set up her own production company so they would have to kind of deal with her on a more professional level. And sure enough, you know, but at that point she went straight up to $100,000 a film with the right to make a film of her own choosing between everyone she did for Fox. So she was able to finally kind of get her due as a star. And honestly, this is still kind of going on. You know, a lot of revelations have come out in the past few years about women being underpaid relative to their male co-stars, whether or not they're at the same kind of professional level. And women are beginning to talk among themselves and the men are talking to them and sort of fessing up with what they're paid. And so that kind of sense of solidarity is allowing women to fight back and actually get their value as, as major stars. So something else you cover in the book that I did want to ask you about mm. and I think is very important to um, include in this conversation is about women who didn't only have to overcome yeah. obstacles placed in front of them by gender, but also um, other things as well. So I'm thinking of women of colour and women um, who were LGBTQ. Yeah. So what kind of challenges did they face? It was horrific. So Hollywood has basically always been kind of racist in terms of the stories it tells and, and the, the films in which it invests. And even though you had a few, you know, attempts at kind of solidly African-American films early on, solidly black casts, so films like King Vidor's Hallelujah, Hollywood never really invested in making a whole parallel kind of black cinema. They just didn't see it as important. So when a black star came along who was self-evidently gorgeous and talented and, and kind of worthy of a studio contract, they would quite often sign her up and then kind of not know what to do with her. And they would basically put her, and I'm thinking of people like Lena Horne, Hazel Scott, Dorothy Dandridge, maybe less so Dorothy Dandridge, but the earlier two in particular, they would put them in a specific scene in the film to sing or dance or both. And then they would cut that scene out before it was released in the southern US states. And that would be it, you know. And so there was no kind of big starring role. There was no love interest because they, there were laws in the censorship code against having interracial relations. And they weren't about to cast two black people. So for some reason, that would be far beyond the pale. So... 
these black women were just kind of stuck there. And this was the same with, for example, Asian women. Latina women, sometimes they kind of slightly fudged it and they would find themselves playing different ethnicities. But generally speaking, it was an incredibly racist situation that massively limited the roles available to particularly black women. Um, Gay people as well, obviously gay themes were completely barred under the code, which was also homophobic as well as racist. Um, But gay stars could find themselves in trouble. So you you hear a lot about lavender marriages, which is quite a nice sounding term, but it was a a cover for a gay man or gay woman to marry a person of the opposite sex um, just as cover for their real sexuality. And there were those in in early Hollywood history. Famously, Rock Hudson was one. Um, You also had stars like Kay Francis, who was bisexual, who there were rumours about, and that's said to be one of the reasons why her career suddenly went from top of the A-list to kind of middle of the B-list. If we're talking about women facing discrimination in Hollywood, Mm. then it would seem incredibly remiss not to talk about a moment from much more recent history, Mm. um, being the Me Too movement. Um, I'm interested that as a person that's looked at the broader history of this story, how you see Me Too fitting into that? How do you see Me Too's place within the hundred years or so that preceded it? I mean, obviously it's it's still very much early days and, and everything I'm about to say kind of depends on people keeping on caring, right? Which is is the real key here. People in general, in the, in the public, in the world, have to keep on caring. But what was key about the Me Too movement was how many women big stars with nothing to gain, came out and said, I have experienced this, to the point where the, the world and the media could no longer write it off as one, you know, bitter person who never made it, you know, because that's been the, the traditional thing. If you speak out about having been a victim of the casting couch or having been a victim of abuse or worse, of rape, of sexual assault in Hollywood, you know, the narrative that they always pushed was, well, you failed. You were so- you somehow came up short and you're now blaming everyone else for your failure. And that's been the line that the offenders, frankly, have pushed in the media and that the media has accepted and has run in many, many, many cases. And what was key about Me Too was the fact that women stuck together and women spoke up for each other and women said, I believe her. I have experienced the same thing. Because that level of solidarity and public solidarity has not happened before. And I think that was really, really massive because the entire news media around the world really had no choice but to take it seriously for a period of months, which has never happened before. That was massive. The other thing that was massive was the fact that these women decided to do something positive about it. So particularly these incredibly rich, privileged, mostly white women decided to use their power for good, basically. It was kind of Spider-Man with great power comes great responsibility kind of moments. And they all, first of all, got together, started talking to each other about, you know, production deals, about money, about opportunities, about who was good and who was bad. They also started talking to each other and realizing that they had allies in each other and weren't all competing for the same handful of good roles that come up each year and started to kind of work together to create opportunities for each other. So you get things like Reese Witherspoon's production company working to make, you know, Big Little Lies or something and giving great roles to loads of women. Then you also have them setting up Time's Up, so pooling their resources and reaching far beyond Hollywood's borders to try and help women who are suffering sexual harassment or sexual discrimination in loads of different industries. And literally, we're talking everybody from McDonald's to, I think, the FBI Academy was, you know, has been helped by Time's Up. 
And that's a real key is if you can keep that conversation going, if you can keep it going across all these different industries, if you can force all these industries to confront the sexism and abuse that exists within their their walls, then maybe you can begin to change things. And I think that's where we're at at the moment. But it really does depend on everybody realising and forcing studios and and production companies and so on to realise that there is a real reputational risk if they don't take this seriously. So if you have a Harvey Weinstein, God forbid, in your midst, in your midst and you cover up for him, your entire company could suffer. Now that's never really been the case before. And as long as that's the case, then there's hope of real change. So a bit of a hopeful note to end on there. Yeah. And my final question, I just wanted to ask you to nominate Forgotten Female Heroes, a film that our listeners might not have heard of, that they should go away and look up. Well, um, first of all, I'd go to YouTube. Let's keep it sh- let's keep it very cheap. Uh, you can go to YouTube and you can find films immediately from the silent era. So directed by people like Alice Gee. Uh, there's a very nice short called Falling Leaves that she made. Um, Lois Weber, some of her films are on, uh, are on YouTube as well. Um, you can also look at Mabel Normand, who was a, an early silent era star who actually trained Charlie Chaplin in screen acting and, and trained him in directing. Now, I should say he doesn't credit her for that, but other contemporaries absolutely say that's what happened. So Mabel Normand, I think, is well overdue for a, a kind of reassessment. The other thing you could have a look at is in the silent era, there was actually a vogue for female-led action movies. So if you think that Wonder Woman and Captain Marvel are recent you know, innovations, you are a hundred years wrong because there were series called The Hazards of Helen and The Exploits of Elaine and The Perils of Pauline uh, right back in the silent era. And you can find lots of those on YouTube as well. So they're really, really worth a look. That was Helen O'Hara. Her book, Women vs. Hollywood, The Fall and Rise of Women in Film, was published last week by Little Brown. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow when Aidan Dodson will be talking about Nefertiti. (laughs) 